Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thanks, Karen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it paints a picture for us of how wonderful it will be for all of us to be united to Christ. Uh, so we pray this morning, uh, show us uh, why that is something that is worthy of our lives and why you are worthy of all praise. Amen. Okay, well, can I ask you please to make sure you've got Ephesians 5 open in front of you. Um, to also grab out one of these leaflets you were given as you came in. There's a pretty detailed outline in there with a couple of quotes and as well as a blank for you to fill in, so make sure you have that and a pen handy. And finally, to make sure you can see those memory verses that um, we've already had referred to, aren't you pleased as to how short they are this week? Yeah. And here's good news, it'll be the same verse next week. So you've got a chance to get back on track if you're doing the memory verse challenge. Uh, well, I want to start by confessing that I'm somewhat nervous about speaking on today's passage uh, for three reasons. Uh, the first is that um, I've conducted over 60 weddings, most of them right here in this church, standing at this particular point, and at almost all of them I've preached on this passage, which at the time seemed to make good sense, but on a regular Sunday, it doesn't seem quite as relevant, uh, particularly for those of us who aren't married especially if we would like to be married, but are not. Uh, even for those of us who are married, this passage is one that is confronting because if your marriage looks nothing like what is described here, this will be a hard sermon to hear. Second reason why I'm a bit nervous is that I realise that since 2017, when laws in our country changed, a biblical view of marriage as between being one man and one woman it puts us at odds with the rest of our culture, uh, like much of Scripture does, to be honest. I want to say that if you're here today and you're someone who holds a different definition of marriage, you are most welcome in our church. 
Uh, I would love to meet you afterwards to hear something of your views because I'd love to introduce you to Jesus during your time with us. The third reason why I'm a little bit nervous about this passage, and this is the big challenge, and I'm not going to downplay it in any way, uh, all this talk of submission is almost impossibly distracting. Submission. It's not just culturally weird. In today's day and age of equality, it is utterly incomprehensible. To ever suggest that a wife should submit to her husband, quite frankly, it sounds offensive. And that's not just for those of us who might be checking out Jesus for the first time today. This grates on all of us who are here. The thing is, by including what he does in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul apparently thinks that everyone in our church family needs to hear about marriage. And what's more, despite all of the challenges and concerns that we bring with us, Paul never focuses on the problems Instead, what he does in Ephesians 5 is paint an extraordinary picture of how good and wonderful marriage should be. Now, there is a lot to say on this topic, obviously too much, so instead what I'm going to try and do is just focus on some of the big issues which will hopefully initiate and invite conversations that might continue in the week ahead. Look at your hand out there, point one, what this passage says to everyone. Uh, You'll recall that the way in which Ephesians is broken up is into two parts. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, described a God who is rich in mercy. Before we come to the second part, chapters 4 through 6, the God who prepared good works in advance for us to do. We saw the turning point, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, printed there on your handout, chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What chapters 4, 5 and 6 then do is show what it means to live that kind of life. Uh, The first part of chapter 4 we saw, that was all about unity in the church. Uh, The second part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, last week we saw that was all about purity and our godliness. Now for the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, Paul is going to turn to relationships and how we relate to each other within the family. What's most interesting is the way in which Paul begins in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The way Paul begins this section is by saying that all of us are to submit to one another because of reverence for Christ. Yet again, and I know you are utterly sick of me saying this, the vertical shapes the horizontal. The way God treats us that's, the way in which, that's what shapes the way in which we're to treat other, each other. All of us submit to one another. Why? Because of reverence for Christ. This is actually the grace of the gospel part of this talk. It's a reminder that all that we do is possible only because of what God has first done for us. And it's also the reason why I chose it as the memory verse, which, as I said, is blissfully short. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how this principle plays out in different relationships. If you look on your handout there, uh, this week we're going to look at wives and husbands, the rest of chapter 5. Next week, uh, we're going to look at children and parents, slaves and masters, all under this heading of what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, point two in your outline, how wives live a life worthy of the calling they've received. 
How wives live a life worthy of the calling they have received. Pick it up with me in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. And before I read it, just one sec, Michael. Can you go upstairs? Can you turn the mic off? Thanks. Can I have the mic back on? Thank you. Sorry, just shutting some windows up there. Um, Okay. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Husbands, love... Verse 22, lost my place. Wives, submit to to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Well, uh, I'm a man and I'm a husband, but I do realise just how shocking this sounds. I'm also a father of two teenage daughters. And this week, as I thought about this passage and possibly what lies ahead of my daughters, the thought of them being in this kind of marriage, it doesn't sit easily with me. I do realise how women in general and wives in particular have so often been taken advantage of by by men and husbands. How they've not been treated with equality and respect and honour. And so I want to say from the outset, something I'll repeat throughout this talk, uh, although I cannot apologise for the sins of men throughout time, I can say that any such behaviour is always wrong, it should not have happened, and it is absolutely not how Jesus would have us live. After all, he calls all of us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So... What is Paul saying? Have a look on your handout. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about what Paul is saying. I want to try and show why this is good and then just clarify what Paul is not saying in this section. What is Paul saying? Well, let me begin with some definitions. The difference for us is that when we hear the word submit, we assume that Paul means be subjugated or trampled on or dominated or even enslaved. But, as I've already said, I cannot say this too often, although men have been guilty of this, there is never any justification. And anyone who treats women that way should be held to account and bear the consequences of their sin and help to change. So what does Paul mean when he says to submit? Well, most simply, he means seek to do another's will. Seek to do another's will. Paul is describing here what it means to willingly and voluntarily give up your own interests for the sake of somebody else. Now, of course, that's kind of hard for me to describe because there are very few good parallels or illustrations that instantly resonate with us. Uh, In fact, if you look ahead into chapter 6, Paul is going to use the same word, is going to continue to talk about this idea of submitting, but when he tells children and slaves, he'll actually tell them that they are to obey. Probably because, actually, marriage is a very different type of relationship. Marriage is between two consenting adults of equal status. Nevertheless, what Paul means when he talks about submitting is to seek to do another's will. Now, I realise that this sounds hard very hard. And yet here's the thing, 
all of us have already submitted to another. All of us have already submitted to Christ when we became Christians. In fact, whenever we pray, what we prayed this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are recommitting ourselves to giving up our own interests for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of Jesus. And that's the reason why I think Paul can say that when a wife submits to her husband out of reverence for Christ, verse 21, or as to the Lord, verse 22, what she is doing is living a life that's worthy of her calling. Now, having said that, I am not naive. I do realise that no husband is ever as worthy or honourable or as deserving as Christ is. So, to be told, submit to your husband as you do to the Lord, it still feels fraught with danger. And yet, the fact that no person can ever match up to Jesus doesn't lead Paul to say, well, don't bother. Just aim a bit lower. You know, I'm pretty sure that Paul knew that husbands were not Christ, that husbands were not perfect. But still, he says to aim high because it should be very, very good. And even though we can't quite see how often, our starting presumption is that it will be good. Why? Well, because our God, who is rich in mercy, has prepared good, good works in advance for us to walk in. Well, how then can it be good? Point two there on your handout. In Ephesians 5, Paul does assume that there is an order in marriage. He talks there in verse 23 about the husband being head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Husband head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. But I want to be very, very clear. That order that Paul is describing, it cannot be hierarchical, it cannot be domineering, and it cannot be demeaning in any way at all. Two reasons why, both of which are printed there on your handout. Firstly, because Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Because Christ is the head of his church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus is our ultimate head? Not any person. Jesus is. Jesus is the one under whom every person, man and woman, husband and wife, is placed. And notice how his headship is so beautifully described in verse 23. He's the head of his own body. And you notice the way in which he treats those who are part of his body. He saves us. So the first reason why this order cannot be demeaning in any way is because Christ is the head of the church. The second reason, there on your handout, is because Christ himself submits to his Father. Christ himself submits to his Father. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I've printed it there for you in your handout. It's a slightly different situation that he's addressing, but the principle, I think, is exactly the same. Look at what he says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, but the head of Christ is God. 
The head of Christ is God, God the Father. The reason why we know that being called to submit to one another or another is good is because Christ himself submits to his heavenly Father. In fact, the best example of that is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays the prayer he taught us. Father, not my will, but yours be done, he said. What I'm trying to say here is that submission is not a dirty word. Not if Jesus is willing to do it. Submission is not a dirty word. Not if Jesus is willing to do it. Actually, I was going to call this talk, Submission is not a dirty word, but I thought that might be a bit too provocative. But you understand the principle that's being laid out here. If Christ submits to his Father, and that's the model where to follow, that must be good. Now, once again, like I said, I'm not naive, I understand that Christ's submission to the Father, well, that's perfect in the way in which a man's submission to Christ is not and a wife's to her husband is not. I understand that. But still, the model is worth aspiring to. And the thing is that when it doesn't work out, because husbands are not perfect like Christ, thankfully, Jesus is still our saviour. And you remember we saw this in last week's memory verse, which I've reprinted there for you, from chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Look at the second half. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How wonderful to know that when we fail, still it's Jesus who makes amends. Now, in a moment I'm going to turn to what, what Paul says about how husbands are to live a life worthy of the calling they've received. Before we do, I just want to be very clear what Paul is not saying to wives when he says they are to submit to their husbands. So this is the third and final point there, what Paul is not saying. A wife who seeks to do her husband's will is not making an unconditional promise to do anything that he wants. She is not making an unconditional promise to do anything that he wants. Uh, voluntary submission here, it never means without exception or without question because one last time, a wife should never be demeaned or humiliated or told to be silent by her husband. Uh, as in fact we're about to see, nothing could be further from the truth because Jesus will never tell a husband to treat his wife in that way. In fact, the exact opposite. Now, one of the reasons why I'm saying this to everyone here in church is because this is actually a concern for everyone in our church family. If any husband is acting offensively, let alone violently or illegally, he must be stopped. I want to say to any wife who has been a victim, I am so sorry, it should never have happened. I cannot begin to imagine what you have been through. Please know that Christ is your saviour, he loves you perfectly and we are here to support you with that love of Christ. Please come and see any of the pastoral staff and ask for help and likewise if it's an emergency uh, please do call the number that you'll see on the bottom of the page. Can I say at this point to any husband who is failing in this area, as the head of the household you will still answer to your head, Jesus, for your behaviour. Yes, there is forgiveness from him 
He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. But you must repent. You must face the consequences of your actions. And you must get help to change. Uh, Each week I try and recommend things to read. This week, rather than a book, I'm actually going to recommend a podcast. The podcast you'll see a reference to down the bottom. It's actually a very important podcast because this is not a podcast for women or wives. This is a podcast for men and for men who need help in this area. Uh, And I'm putting it there, actually, because I want to encourage everyone to have a listen to it. Well, turn over the page on your handout to point three. We come to how husbands are to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Um, It's been pretty heavy going so far, haven't we? So I thought we'd um, take a breather and we'd play a a fun word association game. That'll make you smile. Well, here's how the game's going to work. I'm going to say something and I want you to call out the corresponding action. I'm going to say an action, I want you to call out the corresponding reaction. It's not very hard, okay? So, here we go. Group participation time. Stand up. Sit down. That was an easy one. Okay. Give. Ooh, interesting. Some people say take. Others say receive. Okay. Here's an easy one. Pick up. Put down. Yeah, okay. Submit. Hmm. This one's a tricky one, isn't it? Now, I did actually hear someone call out the answer. Thank you very much. That wasn't helpful. You spoiled my punchline. When you hear the word submit, all of us hear words corresponding to that like rule or have authority or dominate. But no, in Ephesians 5, the corresponding word to submit is love. That's the blank for you to fill in there. If wives are to submit, husbands are to love. And in fact, what's amazing is that in the rest of chapter 5... Paul is going to repeat that one command three times. Three times in just eight verses. It's kind of hard, even for very slow husbands, to miss the point. Have a look at the passage as I read it out, verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. It's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, three times, verse 25, 28, 33, husbands, they are to love their wives. Now, of course, the question is, how is a husband to love their wife just as Christ loved the church? Well, there's two ways that Paul explains here in Ephesians 5, both of which are printed there for you on your handout. First way a husband loves his wife is that he is willing to lay down his life for her. He's willing to lay down his life for her. Now, I've acknowledged so far in this talk that it is hard for a wife to voluntarily seek to do her husband's will. I say it is no easy feat for a husband to lay down his life for his wife. 
And yet, this is how Paul says that men man up. This is how men live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. This is how we walk in the way of love that Jesus wants us to. Can I say to husbands, perhaps it will be easier for your wife to play her part if you are willing to play yours and if she knows it. Actually, it did strike me that there is possibly a parallel illustration for how this is meant to work. Maybe the parallel illustration is of citizens who are willing to submit themselves to their queen when they are utterly convinced that she is committed to loving service of her subjects. How lovely it must be for a wife to be so honoured and esteemed that she knows her husband will die for her. The thing is, Paul is referring, I think, not just to the extreme life and death situations, you know, which we can imagine where a husband is called on to dive in front of something to save his wife. Like, it's probably not just that. More often, and far more realistically, I think, it's seen in the little sacrifices that he is willing to make each day. In the way in which he gives up his personal preferences as an act of love for his wife. Uh, so, for example, the way in which he might give up his obsession with sport every September. Or the easy retreat to the solitude of the shed or the man cave. Or maybe just choosing to share more of his feelings than he might otherwise have chosen. How are husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Firstly, to be willing to lay down their life for their wife. Secondly, to help her to be holy and blameless. This is from verses 26 through 28. Have a look at it with me one more time. Verse 26. Now Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Paul is saying to husbands, loving your wife means much more than just giving her what she wants. It means following Christ's example, even if imperfectly, Christ's example of longing to see her made pure and clean and radiant, holy and blameless. You know, that's the exact phrase that Paul used back in Ephesians chapter 1. It's printed there on your handout. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what, that's what Christ will have for all of us. Not just for our wives. And so, what a husband wants for his wife is not simply that she be happy or that she be provided for or that they enjoy a good life together. Can I say that's great? It's just not enough. It's not what Christ wants for her. He wants her to be holy and blameless. And he laid down his life to achieve that goal. And so I want to say, if that's what her head and saviour wants for her, husbands, you really don't want to be operating at cross-purposes with Jesus. One of the first questions that 
My wife, Wendy, and I ask uh, couples when we prepare them for marriage, you know, those 60 weddings that we've done over the years, one of the first questions that we ask them when they come around is we say to them, so why are you getting married? Now, it depends on the tone of voice as to how that question comes across, right? But we ask them, why are you getting married? And usually the answers we get go something like this, because we love each other, because we want to share our lives together, because they're my best friend and I can't imagine life without them. And I want to say for the record, look, that's great. I'd be a bit worried if they didn't say things like that. But it's not enough. It's not enough because actually it's disturbingly close to idolatry. And it will become terribly disheartening when they inevitably let each other down. Uh, in every one of those 60 wedding sermons I've preached, I've pointed out that marriage is taking two sinners, joining them together 24-7. So it's going to be pretty messy at times. I love to bring the fun to wedding days. <laughs> so what really struck me was, recently when we caught up with a couple who are getting married, and we asked them, why are you getting married? They said, well, because we want to see each other holy and blameless in Christ. We want the privilege and the joy and the responsibility of having front row seats to seeing what Christ will do in each other. Because that's what it means, I think, for two to become one flesh. They are together in lockstep every, every bit of the way. Well, what about the argument that because we can never live up to this impossibly high standard, then there's not really any point in trying? As if... The best way to avoid disappointment in marriage is to have low expectations. Well, I just want to say, if you aim for nothing, you'll probably hit it. In fact, what I want to do is just read you a short quote that's there on your handout. This is from a great marriage counsellor who, interestingly, is not a Christian. He's not a Christian, but listen to what he says. People with the greatest expectations for their marriage usually wind up with the highest quality of marriages. This suggests that by holding your relationship to high standards, you are far more likely to achieve the kind of marriage you want than you are by looking the other way and letting things slide. Uh, this is the reason why we want to encourage those who are married to continue to work at their marriages. Uh, it's the reason why, as you can see a reference there on your handout and also on the screen behind me, uh, to the upcoming marriage enrichment night that Wendy and I are running in a few weeks. Uh, we run it so that those who are married might grow closer to each other, but far more importantly, they might grow closer to Christ and grow in his love for us. Well, let me finish then at point four, why marriage matters to everyone. One of the challenges for us, I think, when we come to Ephesians 5 is that we focus on all the difficulties with the text and we think of all the problems in our own experience. And that can leave us feeling a bit embarrassed by Scripture, as if we must somehow defend it to all comers. When instead, God's Word paints a wonderfully beautiful image. It's not just for Christian marriages, it's for every relationship in the church. And that's because, in this passage, what we see is that there is actually one marriage that all of us is looking forward to? It's the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, as we saw there in verse 32. You see, earthly marriages are only temporary for just a few fleeting years 
Because despite what the world around us might tell us, finding love is not the greatest good. The greatest good is knowing how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for us. It's knowing that only Christ can fully satisfy and complete us in the way in which no earthly spouse ever will. Maybe that's the reason why God's love for his Old Testament people is usually likened to a marriage and conversely, their sin against God is described as adultery. And maybe that's why Jesus performs such great signs and wonders at weddings and tells stories about lavish wedding banquets that everyone is invited to, free of charge. You'll see at the bottom, uh, second from the bottom there, uh, the introduction to the wedding service that we use here. Marriage is the symbol of God's unending love for his people and of the union between Christ and his church. So St. Paul teaches that the husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church and that the wife must give due honour to her husband. Marriage is the symbol of God's unending love for his people and of the union between Christ and his church. And the thing is, marriage is that symbol, not just when a couple is obviously in love and going well, it's the same symbol when they sin against each other and yet still they persist in giving grace and extending forgiveness out of reverence for Christ, because he's the one who forgave us first. It's all the more reason why Ephesians 5 calls us to give thanks to Jesus that he is our fragrant offering and sacrifice. And it's why Ephesians 5 is not just about all the ways that marriages can fail, it's about how they can be joyful and wonderful and point us to the hope that we have in Jesus. You see, because marriage is a symbol, what matters much more is the reality to which it points. That's the reason why when Wendy and I got married, we had Revelation 21 read at our wedding. Because the one thing that we knew for certain about our future together was that there's a better marriage that everyone is invited to. This is the vision that Ephesians 5 imagines. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. When the Apostle John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, he doesn't see a place. He sees God's people, the church, the body of Christ of which he is the saviour. This morning, I just want to say to you, whatever you do, wherever you are, don't miss out. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise and the hope that we have of being united with him. We look forward to that day and in the meantime, we pray that his example might shape the way in which we live out of reverence for your Son, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.